All right. Hey. I, I'm, lo- I'm looking at your paperwork here, Mr. Pomper. And, uh, Pomper. Pomper, sorry. Pomper. 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 All right. Um, I'm, I'm looking here, and uh, I see that your company is in a little bit of trouble. Um, and uh, Yeah. Do you want to explain to me why it says that people are strike? Uh, maybe, maybe it's better that I explain this, okay? Oh, my God. So, uh, oh, my God. It's, it's no big deal. I mean. That's. Okay, I'd love to hear your explanation for how this this is not a big deal. Go, well, like, go it, forward. You know, it's just, uh, I, my name is Doug Pomper. I have an independent gas pumping firm. I have a couple uh, oil rigs out there in the sort of the Antarctic Circle. You know, I got pretty lucky, uh, come from a nice background, uh, used my dad's money to set this up. But anyway, so we ran into a little problem recently on one of our recent uh, pumpings. And, uh, you know, the boys just got a little bit rowdy. There was a whole family of seals out there. Scared away most of them, but the babies were still sticking around. And I mean, the boys, uh, you know, they get tired out there, so... They just start swinging, clubbing them baby seals. What is the clubbing of the seals pertinent to your business? I mean, the seals probably weren't bothering anybody. And I mean, we just put the oil, the rig down in one spot. It does its thing. But uh, no, it's just the boys being boys, you know? I think uh, this... Who hasn't clubbed a baby seal? (laughs) Yes, of course. This PR firm is going to have to decline taking your case. What the... What the hell is that about? I mean, it's not a big deal. How hard is it to cover up a whole company of like 200 people clubbing clubbing like 10,000 baby seals? This seems easy. Welcome to a single mic edition of Homegrown Horror. A main spooky podcast where we talk about main spooky things, true crime, uh, horror, cryptids, crawlies, and today the worst thing of all, which are racists. Oh boy, racists, the most fearful thing. That probably is the worst thing of all. Yeah, you know? it's bad. <laughs> it's, uh, it's encompassing of like uh, a lot of societal problems. You know? Oh yeah. It's like the yeah. root of all evil: racism, bigotry. Yeah. Fear so, of the the difference. Yes, because you know uh, Monday yesterday was Juneteenth, and so I thought that it would be good to dig into some of the African-American history here in Maine, because we've done Malaga Island, and one would think, oh yeah, I mean, that's got to be like the one major terrible racist thing that's happened in the state. Like, we things seem pretty good. No. You're There's wrong. more. There's it's, more. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing fine. You know, doing, yeah, nothing to complain about. New job's great. Mm-hmm. Just rolling along. Same. Uh, we got a long weekend out of the weekend. And uh, so. I did not. You did not. I did. <laughs> I won't describe my work. Um, no. But it was a grand old time I, I enjoyed. I had a brief moments in the sun, you know, 
you know how it goes. Brief moments. Of Brief the sun. moments. Of the it sun. is funny because I didn't have a long weekend, but I went to a concert on Sunday. Wow! I went and I saw The Cure because I'm a 50 year old man, <laughs> and um, uh, it was amazing. It was everything I thought it would be. I got to laminate my goth card. Yeah. So that was good. Uh, I am officially a goth forever and ever because I've seen Robert Smith live. So you can't take that away from me. But Nobody can take it away from you. <laughs> no. But we got home at 2 a.m. and then I rolled out of bed at 7.30 to get up and start training. <laughs> <laughs> so I am still quite tired. I, but yesterday was also my birthday. I have the fortune of having my birthday on Juneteenth. Nice. Well, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's pretty, you know, what, what else? Yeah. There could be worse. Uh, there could be way worse things. Yeah. You could like have it on Christmas. I could have it on Columbus day and it's like, oh, oh there you go. We're celebrating this fuckwad on my birthday. Absolutely not. You could have it on 420 mixed bag because you got, uh, the weed, weed day and then the Hitler's, weed day. the weed day, Hitler's birthday. That's Hitler's the, birthday. Yes. Oh Jesus. And the anniversary of the Columbine shooting. Jeez. Big mixed bag. For real. <laughs> At least I think it is. Anyway, we don't need to look it up. Take my word for it. Yeah, we'll take your word for it. That's, you know, that's how most uh That's how most of these episodes, episodes go. go. Yeah. Uh, so today we are going to be discussing... Uh, I had no idea. I had no idea that this had ever occurred. And neither did a lot of people, including state historians. Wow. Okay. So very similar to Malaga Island, little uh, racist bad spot in history we don't talk about. It sounds like Maine did a spectacular job of hiding its racism. Yeah, just like his ooh, historical racism. Ooh, we better get rid. We better think... scrub this bad boy. Yeah, we're gonna scrub this. We're gonna talk about the elephant in the room first, which is Maine has always been pretty white. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. like, I th it's something insane, like 95% Caucasian, isn't it? So it's in the 90s. I guess what? 20, uh, 2020 census yielded unsurprising results. White alone was 61.6%. Black alone was 12.4%. Hispanic, 18.7%. Asian, 6%. Um, uh, Native American and Alaskan Native was 1.1%. Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander was 0.2%. Some other race alone was 8.4%. And two or more races was 10.2%. Mm. So white is still a, a pretty overwhelming majority, especially when you look at how small the other percentages are. I'd say that's... Yeah, I mean, I think... I thought it was way, like, more skewed towards whiteness. Um, because, like, I feel like that's the big thing you hear out here is just like, oh, this is an insanely white state. It's still actually, insanely white. It is insanely white. It's more diverse than I thought it, it was, was being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That part, I, I, the, the thing that I think most people are surprised about is the fact that, you know... Maine seems, the, the populated, the super populated parts of Maine, that's the caveat I'm putting here, they tend to be more liberal. Yeah. Because the, the states that are less, or the states, this area of the state that's less densely populated tends to be pretty red, which is like most of the, 
most Ge- of the northern geographical half. coverage. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's most of the state. But most of everybody, most of the population lives in southern Maine. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, I went to a uh, Christian college um, back in the day, and I remember during the first Obama election, Obama McCain. Actually, was it the first? No, sorry, that would have been earlier. So it was Obama and uh, the Mormon, um, Mitt Romney style, yeah. and uh, I remember walking past like the common room when some of the students were watching the television and they're like they're saying Pennsylvania's blue I don't get it it looks mostly red (laughs) that's the it's it can be that's you know that's what can throw people off is that just because there it's show like that geographical location is showing as red? There could be two people in that area, I mean, and they both voted Republican. It's a microcosm, I think, of like how most how our elections go um, in general when it comes to the electoral college. Because mm-hmm. it's like, why the fuck is, is is does the race always feel so close? You know, yeah. <laughs> and you look at the electoral college and its distribution, and it like gets. It feels like it's getting narrow and narrow, narrower over the years, and then you look at the popular vote and you're like, wait, but but the Democrat won by three million on the popular vote. Yes, it still felt really close, and then like there's the instance of uh, Trump won over Hillary, but Hillary won the popular vote. And that's also happened one other time in history uh, concerning the electoral college. So anyway. Our election system is garbage. It is pretty garbage. If you're interested in on electoral systems, CGP Grey has some very great videos on how the electoral college works and how voting works. Just 10 out of 10, highly recommend, breaks it down in a very understandable way. I'll just summarize it right now. It's bullshit and we should get (laughs) rid of it. That too. (laughs) The other thing that's very surprising is despite how liberal Maine is... It has its fair share of hate crimes, and we kind of discussed this a little bit in the Charlie Howard episode. Thirty. Uh, so, the, in 2021, there were 75 hate crimes that were reported. 36 of those, which is 47.4%, were racially motivated. How does that compare to other states? You know, you, if you don't have the I stats, that's fine. I did not look up the stats for that. I just find that I, I find that interesting. I mean, as far as like hate crimes. I'm surprised there isn't more. I'll say that. Because I think another thing that we're seeing, especially recently, is like we are seeing a bit of a rise in sort of neo-Nazis hanging out in our public oh, spaces. Oh, yeah, especially in Portland. In Portland. You, you, you saw some coverage recently. And I think there's a, one of the Proud Boy founders is like out here. There's other like Proud Boy folks that are, are neo-Nazi Christian nationalist types that are trying to make this a home base for uh, that movement. The answer is no, go home. And Tucker Carlson moved here recently, so, you know. Wait, what? Yeah. You didn't know that? No. Tucker Carlson's, like, in a little... Uh, I don't know if he's staying here, but after he left Fox News, he came up to his... I forgot where it is, but he has a studio, personal studio space in Maine, and I believe he's trying to launch his news network out of that location, or whatever show he's doing. Okay. We don't want you. I bet he's going to try to run for governor. Oh, dear. No, no. I want to see him get stomped. Well, guess what? <laughs> All of this to say, I need you to buckle up because this episode is also going to be pretty terrible. Probably not as... It's fine. Everything I'm doing lately is terrible. That's all you need to know. 
You've they've listened to the episodes. They know. They know. <laughs> this is apparently, like I said, one of Maine's best kept skeletons, as it has eluded even local historians. Like somebody dug this up. Her name uh, her name is Karen Sieber, and in 2020, she made extreme efforts to uncover this story. So I've used multiple sites for this episode, but I'm giving credit to Sieber because most of those other sources give credit to her for the main body of work. Hmm. Interesting. And she brought, so she brought this story to light some 100 years after the fact. Wow. Insane. So we are going back to April of 1919. And we have two brothers. The Courtney brothers, two Sam, brothers, two brothers, Samuel and Roger, were finishing their second year at the University of Maine. They were born from a, in a into a prominent black family from Boston, and they were just two out of at like a dozen black students at this at the college. Their father was Dr. Samuel Courtney, who graduated from Harvard in the 1890s and was active in politics, including, quote, being part of the Boston riots of 1903 and being elected as the first black member to serve full term on in the Boston School Committee and also developed the National Negro Business League, which for, uh, was formed in the Courtney's house in 1900. So big advocate, big yeah, advocate. That's also according to Westfield News. Okay. So he's he's a man about town. Like yeah, he's a man about town. People know Dr. Courtney and his boys are and they've come up to Maine for their schooling. Interesting choice, you know? And I don't know really what you Maine's reputation was at this point. Well, I mean, if you like nature, it's a good place yeah. to be. I mean, if you like the outdoors. I was up at um the main campus of UMaine recently or now. Um, I mean, as it stands, I think I don't think I would go to school there because it's kind of kind of dumpy. Uh, but yeah, it, it is a little dumpy. But I would imagine back in what when was this? Nineteen nineteen. Nineteen nineteen. It probably looked pretty gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, it was probably. Unfortunately, their time at UMaine would be short lived. Some sixty freshmen, their sophomores, some some freshmen decided. Hazing the brothers would be a swell, read not swell, idea. They gathered around Hannibal Hamlin Hall dorm where the brothers lived. Details are kind of spotty, but Samuel and Roger apparently knocked out three of the students that had assaulted them and escaped reportedly down a rope ladder and they fled Orono. Following their escape, you know, these 60 students apparently were very upset because 100 students and community members rallied to help these boys just finish their little prank. Oh, no. Crazy. I'm saying that in quotes. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a lot of people getting involved in a you know, prank. Uh, just because they were all racist as hell. Yeah. In a stroke of terrible luck, Samuel and Roger were found in Old Town about four miles away from the school. Unfortunately... At this point, they would probably stand out among the very white crowd that they're walking about. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know what they... Uh, so we're talking about a mob? Kind of. It's a hundred people, yeah, that's a mob, I think. You ready for this? No, but no. I know what's going to happen, though. Maynard News describes the following events. 
Quote, the white students placed horse halters around the young man's necks like nooses and led them back to campus for the biggest hazing party ever held at the university. That's not a hazing party. What the fuck? Yep. Despite efforts by some bystanders to dissuade the white students, the mob formed a ring and uh, around the Courtney's in the campus stock judging pavilion, which is also terrible. What? The campus stock judging, judging pavilion? pavilion? Uh-huh. What is that? It's where, like, you've been to, like, the fair. Remember when we were watching, like, the pig races and stuff at the yeah, fair? Yeah, like, yeah, Like, those yeah. would be... Or last time we went, we watched them do cattle judging. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So that's what we're talking about. A pavilion where you would be judging cattle. Oh. And we're just going to torture these black men. In the oh. cattle judging pavilion. That's oh, fucking gotcha. fine. Yeah, because they're like, oh, they have a yep. horse halter on them. Yep. Okay. So they boiled a vat of molasses down to the consistency of tar. Oh, what the fuck? The brother, no. Mm-hmm, the brothers insisted that they merely fought off three of the assailants in self-defense, but their pleas were ignored. At around five or six in the morning, the brothers were forced to strip off all their clothes and slather themselves in the hot molasses. They stood naked and shivering that early spring morning. They were covered in feathers and compelled to pose for photographs. And there are photographs. I've seen them. It's fucking awful to document their humiliation. As one reporter noted, feeling ran so high that it was regarded as a f- as fortunate that there were no more serious casualties than bruises and scalp wounds. Bangor police and the local sheriff showed up just as the students were dispersing. They made no arrests, unquote. Oh, wait, no, there's more. Sorry, not not unquote yet. The New York Herald reported that the Courtney's intended to file a criminal complaint against the ringleaders of the hazing party, but it's not known if one was ever submitted. The Herald also reported that the university and local authorities made extraordinary efforts to keep the hazing from the newspapers, but eventually UMaine president Robert J. Ailey was forced to issue a formal statement. Ailey claimed that the university welcomed black students and denied that the incident was racially motivated. He said that white freshmen were retaliating against the brothers for an earlier hazing incident and that one of the Courtney brothers had previously been asked to leave the campus for violating university rules. He added that while the school did not condone the affair, this kind of hazing was, quote, likely to happen at any time at any college, unquote, unquote. You mean racially motivated? That's not cool. Oh, it's just boys being boys. Kind of, sort of, yeah. You know, that's that's what, the fucking that's justification. Oh my kind gosh! Of. They so, can't help it. They just need to let off a little steam. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise that mainstream. It will not be a surprise that to anyone that mainstream media outlets didn't give a fuck about this atrocity, like that previous article mentioned. Sieber notes that local media like Bangor Daily News and the campus newspaper didn't report. They reported nothing on the event. A search of databases populated with millions of pages of historic newspapers yielded just six accounts of the Courtney Brothers incident. Most were published in the greater Boston area where the family was prominent or in the black press. While most white America was unaware of the attack, many black Americans likely read about it in the Chicago Defender, the most prominent and widely distributed black paper in the nation at the time, unquote. Mm. I mean... Knowing the time period, I mean, this is close to Malaga Island even. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Malaga Island happened close to the turn of the century even. So these are not events that are very far apart, honestly. So, yeah, this time is pretty racist. But this is like, 
aggressive. The other oh, one, yeah. the other Malaga Island just was also aggressive. And <laughs> just that. <laughs> but it was like it was NIMBY racist bullshit. This is just outward redneck good old boy bu- racist bullshit, you know? Yeah. Yep. Sieber also notes that in one of the articles, the New York Herald article, it talks about possible legal action, but she did further research. There really is no nothing to support that claim. Hmm. In reality, there were a few, I, there were just a few eyewitness reports with much of the finer details being corroborated by the Seth Pinkham papers, which is the scrapbook of a former UMaine student. That's where those photos came from. You know, they oh, set up wow. that photo op to show off their crimes. And so they and were And he put it to... in a scrapbook. Yep. Big fucking bastard. Fuck him. Wow. Fuck him. So I did read... Well, good news is that person's probably dead (laughs) at this point. Sieber did, in her her article, linked to the New York Herald article, and it's actually pretty fucking racist as well. Uh, It mentions that the brothers were, quote, in disfavor with the student body of the university because of their domineering manner and ill temper. What? But it also (laughs) calls them half or quarter breeds. Whoa, what the fuck? Is this Harry Potter? What the hell is this? I am very inclined to think that this article is biased. Just a Tad. <laughs> it like it's it's so it's awful because it's also like they're half or quarter breeds. Maybe they're not actually black. Maybe they're from South America and like is like detailing like oh you know is there any anything redeemable in their blood? And I'm like this is nasty. <sighs> I hate it here. More realistically, main campus media notes that, quote... Why wasn't I born in, like, I don't know, fucking Norway or something? Something. (laughs) So main campus media notes that, unfortunately, the brothers were likely targeted because they were athletic, popular amongst female students, and were also veterans of World War I. They're veterans? They sure are. Huh. Weird. So I am kind of inclined to agree with this, that it's definitely racism and petty jealousy that fueled these assholes. I mean, yeah, I mean, it kind of always stems from that. It's like it goes back to why did people support the slave trade in the South for so long? And it was because a lot of it was like even poor white Southern farmers were willing to go fight for the Confederacy to uphold the ability for rich people to buy slaves because it wasn't like poor Southern farmers that could buy slaves or at least a lot of slaves. So what they did it, like I think a big reason that they did it was because they could still feel better than somebody else. And I think that's a lot of racism is just like they want to feel better than somebody else when it's like, motherfucker, we're not in a competition for anything. It's like, this is all whatever weird upbringing that you've had like you know like 1919 you know the we can we know what yellow journalism was looking like we understand how racist media was and i mean people are still propagandized today to hate somebody else that is different from them oh yeah it's just insane to me that as as much as we feel like we've advanced we've done nothing It's like the only thing that's happened is that we've had some leaders that have been willing to stand up and make incremental progress towards some kind of equality. But there's still just like a pocket of people who still have hate in their hearts. Yeah. So frustrating. 
And I don't think that hate's going anywhere. I mean, it's not even a pocket. It's a lot of people. It, unfortunately. It's like 40 yeah, percent. Let, let, yeah, let's, let's be honest. Let's be totally honest. Let's look at those election numbers. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to talk about is it's not just these students. Because this act was a prelude to, and I don't know if you've ever heard of it, the Red Summer. Uh... Is that like an anti-communist thing? No. It okay. is a string of racial-based violence that broke out across the country. The National World War II Museum and Memorial describes the volatile cocktail that led to the events that affected over 26 cities during the summer of 1919. This is a pretty long one, but bear with me because I think it's important. Quote, racial tensions across the U.S. were exacerbated by the discharge of millions of military personnel back to their homes and domestic lives following the end of the war. Competition for opportunities in post-war America, combined with a radically uh, radically changed social landscape, placed uh, whites and blacks in conflict with one another, leading to tragic results. World War I intensified the Great Migration, a mass emigration of African Americans from the rural South to the industrial North and Midwest in hopes of a Escaping the poverty and discrimination of Jim Crow laws. By the summer of 1919, approximately 500,000 African Americans had resettled in northern cities. In many cases, northern whites, many of them newly arrived immigrants themselves, did not welcome black newcomers. Com- newcomers. When the war ended, many returning servicemen resented that their vacated jobs had been taken, particularly by African Americans. Black laborers already suffered from a negative reputation in the white working community for their use as low-wage earning strike breakers, or scabs, who would keep factories in operation while the employees went on strike. Scum. The situation... I don't think they had a choice. <laughs> I don't think these particular people had a choice. The situation yeah. was made worse in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution of 1917. Mm. Many officials and others with little or no evidence suspected black workers of being pawns of the Bolsheviks and anarchists. The Many hell? whites hmm. feared that the return of tens of thousands of black veterans with experience living abroad and more significantly, having received military training, would be unwilling to resubmit to the traditional political and subju- uh, social subjugation that the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. Many black leaders encouraged returning servicemen to assert themselves and fight for the dignity and respect that they had earned through their military service. W.E.B. Du Bois famously called upon black veterans not to simply return from fighting, but to return fighting. Unquote. Nice. Additionally, mobs. So one thing that I do remember, this happened like in a couple of instances, actually in American conflicts, where they would equip black soldiers, mm-hmm. and then there would be sort of like a call for them to be like, "Okay, now go back to your station. Thank you for serving your country." But then they would be like, "No, I fucking fought for you, and my brothers died for you." You know, it's like I want something back. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want to actually care about this country. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, that was the promise when they went back in, when they went to go have this service. There was always a little carrot, you know? So then to receive nothing and then just go back to normal, normal, I'm using quotation marks there, it's fucked up. Yeah. I'm not going to it's really interesting because on a similar note, Allegra and I have been doing some research about black soldiers in the Revolutionary War, and I think there was some 20,000 black um, formerly enslaved people or enslaved people in some cases who fought for the British 
because the British promised them that they could go back to Britain and have citizenship. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Of course, a lot of that was misguided trust that they put in the British because a lot of them believed that slavery was abolished in Britain. U.S. military loves to exploit the most vulnerable population yeah. at any given time. And also, don't quote me on the 20,000. If I re- I'm just trying to remember the article that I was reading yesterday. But it, you know, it is that sort of thing where it's like, you're right. It's And also, when you need bodies to be thrown in as fodder for the war machine, it is easier to target the most vulnerable. I mean, today, today it's um, today it's like young students. Yeah, because it's like, <laughs> what was it? There was a couple of articles that came out from like military folks or other sort of like quotes from military people personnel that were saying that oh, if we forgive student debt, then that's that's like going to be a big yeah, uh, it's one of their deterrent big... against uh, you know. <laughs> Bringing young people in. Yeah, because you get free education. My cousin did go through that, and I mean, it worked out for him. Yeah. But I don't want to, you know, it's crazy to think that somebody is willing to roll those dice. I would not. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. No. So one of the other things that's really interesting about this is it's not the KKK or other organized hate groups. The mobs that were involved were ordinary white citizens, and they would gather and incite violence. Here are just a couple of the major points. Because like I said, things happened in over 26 cities, but these are three of the major ones that I was reading about on um, from this same article from the National World War I Museum. A four-day riot took place in D.C., which was instigated by a false rumor that black men had harassed a white woman, which sounds very familiar. We've seen this before, Emmett Till being one of the most well-known examples. Were they smoking jazz cigarettes? I don't know. (laughs) Black neighborhoods were attacked, and its inhabitants were assaulted on the streets, and the community fought back. In Norfolk... At a parade, at least two black servicemen were killed in a melee before President Woodrow Wilson ordered the streets to be secured by the military. So these two men who were veterans were part of this return parade celebrating their return and they were killed. Welcome home. Another race riot occurred shortly after in Chicago, ending with 38 fatalities, 23 black, 15 white, 537 injured, and upwards of 100,000, not 100,000, wow, 1,000 black families were made homeless by by burning and rampant destruction of African-American neighborhoods. And the red summer came and went. With much of the violence that occurred that summer, overshadowing this particular event. This it was very easy so to crazy. it was very easy for the for you main and main leaders to hide this because they're like, "Oh, our racism wasn't as bad, bad as the other ones." Yeah, we just tarred and feathered some guys, which no one what? died. It's fucking insane. What? This reminds me a lot of um there was a string of riots that were targeting Chinese immigrants back mm-hmm. in the uh, mid to late 1800s, uh, specifically because, you know, 
these Chinese folks are taking our gerbs uh, on the railroads. But, you know, it was really that the Chinese immigrants were being exploited and killed by these railroad companies um, and they didn't have any other options. So then the white people decided to go into the slums that these folks lived and burn them all down and, you know, displace these folks. That's just fucking cyclical. It, 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 that's a great way to describe it. It's cyclical. But it's also the same thing, kind of like what you mentioned with, like, these people are being used as scabs. Yeah. It's basically the same thing. It's like the Chinese immigrants are being taken and used. So when I was saying scum earlier, I'm talking about the people behind this shit. Oh, I like, see what you... I wasn't... I got you. I thought you were no, saying, I'm, fuck the scabs. No, Which, no. to be honest, when I, like, in, in, like, history classes, that's sort of how you're supposed to feel. That is how you're supposed to feel, yeah, because, like, we've seen, like, the examples of, you know... Uh, the government or private companies, Pinkertons, using violent force against, like, striking workers. And that's how, you know, our workers' rights have been paid for in blood. Uh, and they will continue to be, unfortunately, it seems. Um, but, you know, it's like there's so many people out there that just don't have a choice. So they do take these opportunities sometimes to be scabs. It's not great. Uh, but it's also some people that just literally do not have a choice. Um, but also, it's like, at the end of the day, it's on those bosses. That's on their oh, conscience. Oh, absolutely. they're the one doing this outreach. They're the one doing all this shit. Um, solidarity. So, for the Courtney brothers, they did not return turn to UMaine. Don't blame them. And Sieber has actually tried to connect with the men's families, which has become an ongoing project for her. Interesting. Quote, Samuel passed away in 1929, 10 years later. Wow. With no descendants. Roger, who worked in real estate investment, died only a year later. So Whoa. 11 years. Having a pregnant, leaving a pregnant wife and toddler behind. Obituaries for both men are brief and provide no details about their deaths. Unquote. That's unfortunate. They were it's, pretty young then. Yeah. I don't know how old they were when they were at school, but if if we're saying well, you, like... They were veterans, you said. But they could have... Like, I don't know how young the army was recruiting for World War One. I. I mean, pretty young. I think it was like... So they could have gone when they were 16, 17, come back after the war. Yeah, somewhere around there. there. I forgot like how young they recruited back then. Uh I think it was like 17 17. Like 17 makes sense to me because I know now you have to be 18, but, yeah. you know, but you could totally do ROTC or other programs like that to prepare you for it. <laughs> My dad tried doing the ROTC program yeah. back in the um, uh, Vietnam era. Yeah. Uh, he decided to not continue with the program. He had a general, actually. No, it wasn't a general. I think it might have been. That showed up to his ROTC program and his speech was my brother was on the ship that got hit um, and he died there so I need to take revenge for him <laughs> and, my, and my something along those lines I, I, I don't forget I don't, don't remember the exact words but then my dad you know being a very like, introspective guy was like well that's cyclical <laughs> That's what he said. He was like, yeah. that if I am just 
taking revenge, then I'm going to kill someone's brother, and then that's just going to keep things going. And then he ended up actually becoming a big uh, anti-war protester in Portland. He led a lot of um, protests, actually. Really? Yeah. Anyway, this is about my white father. (laughs) So there is a very long way to go still. Yeah. But I wanted to discuss this story in hopes that we can continue on this path of bringing these stories to light because african-american history is often very ignored here in maine malaga island is another great example i wonder what else we don't know yep exactly so my my next point is just because they are hidden does not mean they don't exist yeah and then i did also want to end with this bit from the umaine alumni association Quote, until very recently, UMaine placed all the blame on the Courtney brothers for this incident. However, President Joan Farini Mundy did reverse this statement in a memo to the students and staff earlier this year, which was 2020. (laughs) Quote, both personally and as president of our university, I am appalled by this egregious event in our history. I extend my deepest apologies to the family of Roger and Samuel Courtney. We should all be alarmed by how such abhorrent local violence resonates, not just with similar and widespread events events in the past, but also with recent events in contemporary America. There is much in UMaine's past for which we can all be truly proud, but we cannot shy away from confronting and atoning for our university's more painful moments. For me, while learning about this piece of our history leaves me angry and embarrassed, it also strengthens my resolve to pursue diversity and inclusive excellence today." Unquote. I, a hundred years later, I guess, Better late than never, I guess. But, like, I'm, I think, from what you just kind of described, I feel like he didn't even know, or they didn't even know about this. Like, they're just kind of getting informed. Oh, about yeah. This. No, yeah. that's the thing. Like, they're just learning about yeah, this. Yeah. Pe- like, nobody knew about, like, it was buried and, like, so Sieber started doing this research and it, you know, started doing talks. The university held a talk, I think. Um, it's, yeah, they didn't, I don't think anybody really knew about, no. about it. I think the people that were involved just were like, we're just going to bury it. And it was, e- like I said, it was easy to do because of the Red Summer. And I think that I don't know if, it would have been that way if there wasn't anything else going on because I think like the communities in Boston that rallied around the Courtney's probably could have been a lot louder, but other things were going on. So support and activism had to be pushed elsewhere. Yeah. There's so much about our history. That's just so, I mean, the more you learn about the history of this country and actually really study it, it's not a whole lot to be proud of, you know, at the end of the day. No, not a lot. We get so propagandized when we're in school. I don't know if you are. We always get told about the great big melting pot, right? Have you heard that? Yes, I have. And we were told that that's a good thing, which is kind of fucked up. Yeah. That we're... Taking all these cultures and trying and to, blending almost, them all together that's the until thing. we get American Cinco de Mayo or some shit. Yeah. It's kind of fucked up. And, and that's the thing that's interesting is because like initially you're like, oh, melting pot. There's so many. But you have to think about the context of that. It's like it's not like, for example, like if you think about it, 
in, in this way where it's like you take all the cultures and mix them together and they all can stand next to each other. That's more like blending of a tea or something like that where yeah. the separate parts work together in a great way. A melting pot is just that. We're homogenizing the cultures. Yeah, and that was, I think, seen as good for a while. I think right. even into the 80s and 90s. Um there's a movie that's like super not kosher anymore <laughs> called Bullworth. Have you heard of Bullworth? Nope. Um, probably happy I haven't. Yeah, probably. But I mean, it's a very, I think it's an interesting piece of cinema. Mm -hmm. And it was purporting a lot of things that seemed really progressive at the time, but are kind of like, it's a little fucked up now. Um, a lot of oh. cultural appropriation and then also like a... It did kind of feed into the whole melting pot idea in a way. I mean, it's not 100% bad, but it's also not 100% good. Because <laughs> our difference is, like, a lot of times, like, yeah, we have a lot of things that are the same. But honestly, the diversity of experiences and backgrounds and cultures is what makes us better. In, I think, in in the way that like it I think allows you to that, yes yeah. and it allows you to get out of your box and you can and appreciating uh, is not appropriation yep. let's like the, appreciation not appropriation exactly it's like he has a white guy celebrating like Chinese New Year with other uh, Chinese people isn't me appropriating the culture it's me appreciating it mm -hmm. you know and I'm not like going around and like. Another great example is depiction. another great example is there are you know a lot of people who very much like to um, who like there are people who like to appropriate things that are from native cultures and First Nations cultures. However, appreciating it would be only sourcing your clothes, your jewelry, your um, your dream catchers, things like that from native artisans because mm. you are actually going to them and saying, I know what you're talking, you know, I know that you know what you're doing. You can learn from the people you purchase from and you know that you're actually helping those communities. You get my, you get my drift? Yeah. So happy belated Juneteenth, everybody. And, um, babe, you know, We've, we've talked a lot about, you know, sort of our, our uh, recent American history, mm -hmm. but let's get into a little prehistoric history now. And it's time for the next Mainism. Hey, hey, it's a Mainism. Um, prehistoric history. Main prehistoric history. I don't know if it's actually history. Actually, it's quite recent. <laughs> but it's related to something prehistoric. What was your what's your favorite dinosaur? You got your stegosauruses, you got your triceratops, you got your T-Rexes, your raptors, it's probably, pterodactyls. A pterodactyl. It's probably gonna be like, a, probably a T-Rex or a, um, a, a, a velociraptor, probably, if I had to choose one. Nice. Chomper was my favorite in Land Before Time. Wow. Well, I've got a very fun little roadside attraction for you here today on the episode uh -huh. that features a pink triceratops skeleton, skeleton, skeleton. Look at it. Its name is Pink Floyd. 
You can find this little bad boy over at 45 Searsport Avenue in Belfast, Maine. Stop. (laughs) It is the opposite the intersection of Mill Lane and a fossil's bones throw away from Perry's Nut House, of course, which we've already covered (laughs) before in a previous nut mainism. It's near the Nut House. Look at that. Look at Pink Floyd. I love him. It's a little cute sort of artistic thing. Uh, Let's see if we can get a little more information about him here. Since the last report and photo, he's been placed on a higher platform is much easier to see. He's pink and bright and odd looking as he has ever been. Uh... Pink Floyd stands in front of a jeweler and, uh, of course, near Perry's Nut House. I want to go see Pink Floyd. He's apparently made of steel and was built by students at Skohegan High School to replace the original dinosaur built by Dan Bennett. The original dinosaur, a Sterocosaurus... Whatever, was made of wood and had deteriorated over many main winters. So this pink steel replacement is meant to last for many, uh, much more generations. For many moons. It's our friendly little dinosaur in the Belfast area. So I figured something a little bit cheerful would be nice to... uh, Cap this off. Cap this pile of shit off, yeah. A little maraschino <sighs> cherry on top of your turd. <laughs> I know that there's some, pr- it's a little problematic now in the year of our Lord 2023, but I do love the scene in The Help where she feeds her a shit pie. It's so fucking funny. That's so it's funny. So good. Well, written by Margaret Atwood. Was it? No. Damn it. We talked about this that recently. The Handmaid's Tale. Damn it. No. Wait. Oh, I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Jackson and I have already had a very long week, even though you had a long weekend. <laughs> it's been insanely busy, though. I feel like I didn't really have a weekend. And, no. But that's not important. Um, Thank you all for listening and coming along while we talk about Maine's hidden histories. And I highly recommend that you just you do your own research and keep bringing, you know, let these stories come to light. Let us all learn about the hidden histories of people in Maine that, again, if they're hidden, they doesn't mean they're not there. Let us know what you thought of this episode. You can also reach out to us with questions, comments, concerns, or, you know, stories. Maybe you have a hidden history of Maine. You can do all of that by sending us an email at homegrownhorrorpod at gmail.com or hitting us up on Instagram at homegrownhorrorpod. We always appreciate, you know, um, ratings or reviews on Apple Podcasts, but we're just so happy that you're here. So thank you. For coming along. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye.